Hello, 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 and welcome to another exciting episode of... Beneath the Screen of the Ultra Critics. Beautiful. I know, I know, I bet you thought you wouldn't be able to hear him or the fact that we wouldn't come back. But ha! Both turn out to be wrong. It's going to be real funny if they still can't hear me. <laughs> uh. <laughs> God, I hope they can. Uh, welcome to the show. Uh, we, we, we went on a brief hiatus because I became inaudible to human ears, but we're back now. <laughs> and now everyone can hear you and I have proof that you do exist, not just uh, in my own head. Eh. Eh. <laughs> Ish. <laughs> right. So, uh, as we've recently decided we're going to start doing, uh, recent film news stuff. <laughs> Unna- unnamed beginning of episode film news segment. Yeah. Okay. Zack Snyder has announced, well, I shouldn't say announced, some rando on Twitter asked him a question, and he responded. And the question the guy asked him, and a very uh, I mean, weird, I don't know if you read the tweet, it's a very weird phrasing of it, and I don't know if it's because he's not a native to any language, or maybe grammar just isn't a strong suit. Either yeah. way, he asked him what his next project is, and Zack Snyder, because he's Zack Snyder, responded, well, my next project is going to be the adaptation of The Fountainhead. Which uh, he has sort of been talking up for a long time. Like, right. I remember... I remember, and uh, I guess before we get into that, those of you who are, I'm going to go with blissfully unaware, uh, <laughs> The Fountainhead is the other giant tome written by Ayn Rand about uh, an, industrialness, uh, an industrialist with the uh, initials HR uh, bucking the system of all of the, the like liberal vampires sucking the creativity out of an individualist creative genius. But this one's about buildings instead of trains. And this one has a critic who intentionally gives great buildings bad reviews to brainwash the masses into accepting mediocrity. Yeah, like it's... uh, (laughs) Okay, so I I have read one and one-third Ayn Rand novels. Um... The only one that I actually finished is the one that is about 50 pages long and is the most readable, but also the one that I would recommend the le- the, the least if you actually want to get an idea for, for the philosophy, air quote, uh, question mark, um, which is the one that I read is called Anthem. And it is basically like, it's it's like the giver for libertarians. <laughs> in that it takes place in a, a, a future dystopia where everyone is they have to do they have to live in the slot that like they're put in and their fate is decided at birth and blah 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 and then individualist hero rises and escapes and blah, 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 blah. Uh, and it's it's not bad like the reason that it's not bad though is that the the sort of fountainhead uh, Atlas Shrugged bullshit only works on you to the extent that you are willing to accept insane caricatures. <laughs> and not in and like a fun it, way, but like in a truly like yeah, out of the... <laughs> like like that's... Like, like the, the Anthem thing takes any recognizable context away. So it's just insane caricatures in a dystopian future world 
And that's completely, that's banal. You can deal with that and just sort of breeze through it in like an hour and a half. And I'm a slow reader. Uh, Whereas, whereas like Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged, like the Fountainhead example that you gave is the perfect example of this. You have to really earnestly believe or at least already or be willing to believe that critics intentionally lie to keep things that they know are great down. (laughs) Like you have to want that thought or at least accept that it's not insane and paranoid. Right, because I got news for you. As a critic, I want movies to be good. And yeah, if I, I see do. a movie I love, I won't shut up about it. Witness my personal shop event. But Yeah. And and to you you got me to watch that movie and I ain't mad. <laughs> I I ain't mad. That was a fun that was a surprisingly fascinating movie that I was not expecting. <laughs> no one uh, But it's but, also one of the things where like also just because I don't agree with like say I know everyone loves Infinity War and I know a lot of people oh. think it's pushing the art. I think it's pushing the art down the drain. That's not because I, I want you to accept mediocrity. Because I don't want you to accept mediocrity. Yeah. Like, I... Ugh. One day, I will be <laughs> able to actually rant about Infinity War without, like, technology trying to stop me. <laughs> um, but, anyway, sorry. The, the We should probably wrap the Fountainhead thing. But, like, I am curious as to how this is going to play out. Because Zack Snyder... Is good at his job, <laughs> and extent, I, yes. I I think this is a good intro to the broader discussion we're about to have, because the director's job isn't what people think it is. Well, no, but I remember talking about this back when we did the uh, Man of Steel, Batman v Superman episode all those many months ago. Yeah, we said we would kill to see his adaptation of the Fountainhead because that's it. Like he called it the perfect. Uh, ex- metaphor for the creative process or something like that. Yeah, Either it's what he thinks. Was it the Atlas Shrugged or Fountainhead? I forget. Uh, I think it was Fountainhead all along. Okay, but I'm like, you know what? Yes, it's an absolute long time for this movie to exist. <laughs> At the same time, it's like, this might be the one Zack Snyder movie I want to see. <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah. I, I don't know. Like, uh, he He is someone who is excellent at getting really stylish things to occur on a screen, uh, style in itself is of course not inherently good. Right. Uh, but, but he, he will, he's going to lean into this and I, I will watch it and I can imagine it will not cause the same kinds of intense physical pain that the Atlas shrugged movies that I have seen have caused me. Uh, I think I saw both. Did I see both? Are there three or are there two? There are three. The first two okay. bombed horribly, ignoring the free market. And ignoring yeah. the free market even further, these free market libertarians then decided to crowdfund the third one. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, I, uh, then I have seen, yeah, I, I saw the first one with some friends and I think the second one out of, like, weird curiosity. But, ugh, it's... Which uh, one oh, with God. a new cast? Which in yeah. a way, kind of, I kind of like, enjoy that novel idea of let's just pretend like the actors don't matter. I, uh, it, it actually is the perfect. It, it may be the perfect uh, example, either that or the Kansas education system of why libertarian philosophy in, in the American sense is absolute bullshit. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like right. it's anyway. So that's happening. Uh, one of the most famous, like, current filmmakers is 
trying to make an Ayn Rand thing, and it'll be very memorable in some capacity. Let me put it to you like this. Yes, I don't really want it, but it's fine. he's finally making a film that I think is actually perfect for him, as opposed to the other movies, which I'm just like, maybe you shouldn't have done this. Yeah, it's the one adaptation where I'm 100% sure he understood the source material. Actually, <laughs> maybe 300 Actually, maybe 300 also fits that mold. Uh, but it's not a good. It's not a good thing. But <laughs> in terms of the remake of um, A Star Is Born that we're getting, mm. we almost got a remake of A Star Is Born directed by Clint Eastwood and starring Beyonce. Oh yeah, you were telling me about that. And I would love to. I, if I had to choose between those two, I want the Eastwood Beyonce thing because that I think would be madly beautiful. Uh, I'm not. I, I'm not sure what director I would pick, but right now my the movie that I want to see remade in a modern mold is uh, They Shoot Horses, Don't They? <laughs> a movie I've heard about but never seen. Yeah, you should you should see it. It's it's all it's very cheerful and doesn't in any way parallel terrible things about uh, sort of spectacle culture. It's fine. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> all right. So we should yeah. Let's talk about what we're going to talk about today. Well, first off, we have to talk about the movie that inspired this to some degree. Yes, we do. Okay, so uh, that's portion's time. We move on to Solo. Yes. A really fun movie that isn't amazing, but it is really fun, and I don't know why people are hating on it so much. Yeah, I've, I've kind of... I've sort of avoided a lot of the uh, the reviews on it, although uh, because I am a snob, I got my copy of the the New Yorker uh, in my mailbox today, <laughs> and the review was actually like I think generally positive, although yeah, it was sort Brody? of like uh, I'm bad with names, you okay. know me. <laughs> well, like here's the uh, thing, um, I've I've heard someone say this, and I'm kind of getting around to like there's nothing wrong with being a snob; it means you have standards. Now, there's a problem with being an elitist snob, sure, but like... Right. Oh, uh, it's it's Anthony Lane. Anthony Lane, okay, yeah, he's also really yeah. good. Uh, but, but yeah, like, uh, the Solo was an okay movie, and right. I, yeah, it's just, honestly, I, I agree with some of the things that I've, that I've uh, read, although maybe not in, in as negative an extent. In that I think the 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 guy playing Solo, whose name of course escapes me off the top of my head, Alden, uh, Alden Aaron Reich. I couldn't remember the last name. Uh, Aaron Reich, I think, kind of is the weakest link in the movie, but he's not bad. He does. What, I mean, honestly, he does a really good job. I don't think he's the weakest link in the movie. I think the weakest link in the movie is the. the if this wasn't a Star Wars movie, I think it would be better. Yeah, I, I actually, I, th- I could see that. Because for uh, me, when the, when the opening crawl starts and they have all the all caps words that we're supposed to focus on. Yeah. And I'm like, I, I don't need that. Hmm. And then they show us like the whole, oh, Chewbacca. Well, I'm not going to call you by that. We're going to have to come up with a shorter name. Like, I don't need that scene. I don't need to know <laughs> Although... why they started calling him Chewie. It's pretty obvious yeah. why. Yeah, you don't actually have to say that line of thought out loud because uh, it's it's uh, ridiculous. I don't think um, at any point in time had they not had that scene, they'd be like, "Why does he keep calling him Chewie? Clearly, his name is Chewbacca." <laughs> yeah, uh, I, yeah. I think there, there were there were times when the like, "Oh, look at this!" did stand out. Like it not it, it could have been worse, which is right. 
a really weak thing, a really weak way of framing this. Like it could have been worse <laughs> in terms of the uh, the sort of oh look at this thing. And in fact, actually, the one that made me groan the most is the one that the fewest people will have gotten. Oh, yes, because the mar- because the martial art uh, that uh, Kira talks about. Uh, oh, when she takes down the one guy in the mine. Yeah, okay. uh, Terras Kasi. Uh, okay. I, I don't know how many other people are familiar with the classic PlayStation <laughs> One fighting game, Star Wars <laughs> Masters of Terras Kazi. <laughs> hold on, hold but on. I, I bet I don't, I don't know enough. Is that a joke? Is that a real thing? That is a real thing. It is a <laughs> fighting game, a 3D fighter on the PS One that no one cared about. <laughs> <laughs> And that's I'm where that, that came wasn't from. A, a collect in the movie. Oh no, that that's where that came from. Like oh, that's okay. a it's it's a thing. I I wish they hadn't used it because it's stupid. <laughs> 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 but whatever, it's fine. Star Wars isn't. Uh, it's just a bunch of random connected factoids, and that's all. It that's fine. Okay. Right. But uh, but this is a movie that is full of people that are incredibly charismatic and entertaining performers. And all in all, that was that was what made it great. Right. That was what made it good. Great is an overstatement. Right. It's like, yeah, I don't want to call it great. But like I said, I had fun. And honestly, that's all the movie was intending to be. Yeah. And I'm fine with that. Because it was at least, you know, there was a plot to it. Unlike, you know, yeah. another movie that's really doing really well at the box office right now and it's nothing but special effects. Anyhow. Yeah. Mm, 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 mm. <laughs> but it's also like Ron Howard is a really good director. Mm-hmm. And, but also Ron Howard is not a flashy director. At the same time, watching Solo sitting next to Infinity War, we might as well put them together because they all are competing with each other. Right. There is more... Stuff done with the camera in Solo yes. than all of Infinity War. Uh, yeah. Like, the... Uh, I, I, I don't want to just dunk on the Russos, because I don't dislike their work. Right. But, and I think we talked about this a little... Well, I think your voice and then a muffled sound that no <laughs> human could perceive... Talked about this a little. Those uh, is it Vanity Fair that put out those videos of yeah. uh, of directors? Yeah, where we're just like the things that Ryan Coogler did to to frame characters and the choices he made in dressing them in in Black Panther have like narr- there's narrative like consideration behind those things right. in a way that the Russos are good at showing action. Right, but they don't seem as invested in in using all the parts of the cinematic tool set to do something more than just show characters in a story. Right. Well, and also to be fair, if we're going by what they say, the uh, mm. the Russos may just very well be from the generation of directors who don't talk to you about that stuff. That's fair. Because uh, that that could be. There are a lot of directors who just, like, Spielberg never talks about his movies. And yet mm. anyone who watches the Spielberg movie knows he's doing stuff consciously within the scene and within the frame. 
Yeah. And it just might just be the things that, hey, we're not seeing. That could very well be the thing. And it could mm-hmm. just not be the type of people who want to talk about that. Much like That's people fair. like Sidney Lumet, it's like, yeah, I'm not, it's not meant for you to notice. It's meant for me to notice. I'm just trying to do a thing. Mm. That being said, things I saw, I was unimpressed with. But a perfect <laughs> example is a lot of Infinity War has scenes where you have a character's face taken up all of one side of the screen, and then the other part of the screen is just, like, empty space. Yeah. This makes it feel cinematic, but it's something that can say this character is standing off by himself or he feels isolated. That's fine. But when you see that 40 different times on 70 different characters, it starts to lose its meaning. Yeah. Where, say, at the end of Solo, you have that moment where Kira is leaving and she's looking down at him and Han's looking up at her in the ship and the camera does that thing where it sort of slides to the left or the right and moves away. Yeah. And gives you the... And they don't say anything. They're allowed to act and the camera tells you what they're feeling. And the music comes up. And not that mention, but when they're doing that first heist, that sort of odd call, um, sort of staccato pronunciation Mm. they had in the score. I'm not sure if those words made sense. <laughs> you know no, what I'm talking I think about? I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, oh, well, that was new. I, I like that for us. And I was like, yes, it's just a workmanlike movie, but he does stuff that is at least fun or interesting as opposed to Infinity War, which they had to keep everything so tonally consistent, it became bland. Yeah. I just, well, I mean, uh, all. As I've said on on Twitter, and I tried to say into a microphone, but was betrayed. <laughs> uh, yeah, Infinity War has all of the same, like it has the all of the weaknesses of a comic book crossover brought to a big screen. It's it's just yeah. Anyway, well, I, I I need to not fall down that hole though. We should we should talk about. Uh, I should I should try not to just talk about Infinity War. You're you're doing fine. <laughs> <laughs> well, Ron Howard. As I mentioned in my review, got to start with Roger Corman, who made low-level schlock. Yeah, but, like, that's not a bad thing. <laughs> no, it's not, because much like we've talked about, I think, we, maybe we've talked about it so much, I assume we've talked about it on podcasts. The animators who worked on He-Man and She-Ra worked yes. on the Batman the Animated Series. Yeah, uh, like uh, like the a lot of the people who went on to make, like, what we think of as these crowning achievements in like animation and uh, at least American animation in the nineties were people who cut their teeth at like grinding out filmation cartoons that were actually also brilliant. He-Man and the Masters of the Universe forever. Fuck you. Fight me. Um, Well, well, even you mentioned part of the thing, one of the things they did, which most people wouldn't have thought of was they used black paper. Yeah. Which it's, Oh. comes from, you know, being in a situation where you're forced to use only the materials you are given, and if you want to do something fancy, you have to figure out how to do that without it costing extra. Yeah, it's uh, my my favorite conversation to always get back around to, and, and this will, again, come up when we eventually uh, do get to our Hays Code episode in the near future, but, like, learning how to deal with constraints is... It, it will not always, but often fuel really great artistic choices. Well, perfect example. Uh, Brad Bird. Uh, someone uh, was doing an interview with Brad Bird about the upcoming Incredibles movie. Mm-hmm. And he said he had a one rule that he told his animators. And 
It's one of those rules that when you hear it's like, okay, that sounds like half the joke. But the animators took it seriously. And what they found was hmm. it caused them to like, well, okay, how can we do this then? The joke was no three-point landings. Ha! And all of a sudden the animators like, okay, well, how else can we have them land? And visually, that's going to make this movie at the very least different because we've seen the three-point landing done to death now because superhero movies are the only movies people go to the theaters to watch i mean deadpool has made that joke both times so yeah and not only that but in the first uh when they do it when badfoot did ratatouille he told the animators what point of view is this camera movement from and it's like what i talk about well Ooh. This camera movement you have is great, but I don't know whose point of view it is. Whatever point of view we're looking at, you have to assume the audience is going to think it's either the humans or, I forget his name, the rats. And so you don't want to confuse the audience by just having a useless camera movement. Mm. And by doing I... that, now they're forced to go, okay, why are we moving the camera? Who are we moving it for? Doing these oh. things helps you question why you are doing things and does help the creative process because it helps you A, justify why you're doing what you're doing or B, mm. causes you to go, okay, why am I just knee-jerking reacting to that? God, Brad Bird's really good at this. Most directors are. I should also mention <laughs> Martin Scorsese came from the uh, Roger Corman schlock school of directing. It's also why yeah. his movies tend to do pretty well budget-wise and on time. Uh, even though, right. yeah, Like every director, he has examples where he had issues which is also what we're going to get into. Yeah, and I mean, also, um, John Landis, whose first film, if I recall, was literally called Schlock. Yes, John Landis, who might be responsible for killing a man. Oh, that's lovely. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, yeah. you remember Victor McTurr, uh Twilight Zone movie? Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> All right, anyway. Uh... <laughs> That is another topic. All right. Where were we? All right, so the nuts and bolts. One of the things I want to talk about, because we just just bring up Infinity War and Solo, and I kind of bashed on Infinity War. Uh, right, because we can't help ourselves. Right. Uh, VFX team, uh, the special effects team, the visual effects team, oftentimes does not work hand-in-hand hand with the director. Yeah, they're very. They're often very separate institutions. And oftentimes, their stuff doesn't get added until after the movie's basically done. Hmm. Like, a lot of times, people, there'll be screenings of a movie, and it'll just be a green screen or a black screen with the words special effects to be added later. Yeah, the work print stuff. Right. And so, and that's what the studios will see a lot of times. And so, sometimes... Infinity War is incredibly VFX-related. He- yeah. Not related, but heavily <laughs> VFX-driven. Driven. And since directors aren't allowed to dictate outside maybe Bad Bird was because that's a visually animated movie, hmm. a lot of the visual pedantic stuff sometimes is, is fair to criticize, but at the same time, it's, you have to blame someone. But directors don't really get a say in that. Which is why in the beginning of Solo, the scene when we first meet him and he's driving that uh, that speeder. Speed. Yeah. And the, the camera does this weird sort of odd cut that's not very cinematic and it's sort of rote. Mm. That's because probably Ron Howard didn't have a say on it. It's just it's what, it's what it looks good. It's what they've seen a hundred times before. And VFX people are not going to think outside the box unless they are given permission to do so. 
I think I think this this raises a point that I always love to dig into, uh, which is the the question of what the director, the individual director, the person's job is, like what they do day to day during the working of a film, right? Versus what the director's role is culturally, right? Well, and uh, uh, and the uh, the cultural question to me almost always begins and ends with theirs is the name that we blame shit on. Well, and that is also the sort of unspoken oath you take as a director is yeah. you are the one who's going to shoulder the blame, right? Because you your carry name's it. on the title card, and part of the price you pay for being the director is also when they don't like something, they blame you because hmm. you are the person. 90% of the time, who says yes. Because you're... And actually, that's... Uh, I'm going to be a little snarky here, surprising right. everyone. Uh, the director is one of the few jobs in America where the boss actually does take the blame. <laughs> he really does. And one of the things we like... Michael Bay, for a time, could not get a project off the ground because he did a movie with Hugh McGregor and Scarlett Johansson called The Island. Oh, God! And it bombed horribly, and he went on record blaming the actors. Oh, and you don't do that. You don't do that because everyone's like, it's your your job. He's like, well, they wouldn't do what I want to do. It's like, I, every director has had that issue. Fucking... You're not special. Your job you is still, you failed to figure out how to get the best performance out of Marlon Brando. Yeah, a lot of directors feel your pain. You know what else? There have been other directors who did figure out how to get the best performance out of Marlon Brando. It's not yeah. fair, but that's the only way this works because it's impossible to watch a movie and go, well, I guess this is so-and-so's fault. No. <laughs> Logically, you got to blame one person because his name says directed by or filmed by, and that yeah. implies you have some control over it. Yeah, you, you don't hear Ed Wood dumping on Tor Johnson all day, you know what? <laughs> oh, like how dare you? He would never. Brother Tor is a beautiful man. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> I just had to go, like, deep B-movie cuts. Why are um, we getting baptized in the pool? Because Brother Toy wouldn't fit into the baptismal tub. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Why did I do that? Okay, um... <laughs> Ed Wood is a masterpiece. I don't care. <laughs> but, but yeah, like that—that that is like part of the director's job. I didn't know that about Michael Bay. Although, considering his um, what's a a, a a politic way of saying this without uh, offending anyone, uh, his sociopathic personality traits, <laughs> uh, I don't find that hugely surprising. Yeah, it's also, it's um. Now, like I said, like there are a lot. If you talk to a lot of directors, I'm not talking like the PR stuff they do for like Collider and all that stuff for Entertainment Tonight. When you right. when you read actual interviews with directors, number one thing most directors say your job is less artistic and more. There's a reason why they equate themselves as military commanders, not because mm. of the importance of lives in the hands, but the amount of times you are asked, like, should we do this? Yes. Like, the amount of time the decision is asked of you that you would never think of is actually important to the movie. Mm. Shooting schedules. Shot schedules. Um, yeah, like, we, we have this sort of cultural image of the director, like, sitting in the chair by the ca- like ne- right. next to the camera and, and doing all that. But, like, that's not the job. Part of the right, job. Well, there's a one. One of my favorite movies of all time is Francois Truffaut movie called Day for Night, La Nuit, mm. La Nuit Americaine, mm. and it's about 
this guy making a movie. And it's basically a giant, wet, sloppy French kiss to cinema. At the same time, it does show you a lot of little things that most movies about movies don't show you. As he's walking away, a guy comes up to him and like, okay, which gun do you want to use? And he has three guns. And he's like, which one? For the shooting at the end. Hmm. This one is too heavy and make his arms look weak. That's a, like the actual thought that goes into why yeah, he chose sort that of, gun. A sort of material consideration of how this is going to affect the actor and the shot and all those right. sorts of things. Uh, yeah, because I feel like a lot of times when when someone thinks of a director culturally, what they accidentally do is they think something much more like a cinematographer. Right. And now, to, to some degree, a lot of directors do know cinematography. Right. Uh, yeah. There are some, like Michael Bay, who have no clue about cinematography. Okay. <laughs> Michael Bay knows about cinematography, but part of Team America was it was shot by the same guy who did Pearl Harbor, and the stories of him going, you sure you want to do this? Like, yeah. It's like, all right. <laughs> like, now, something like Citizen Kane was as great because Orson Welles had no idea what he was doing. Because right. also keep in mind, it was at that time when the rules were just starting to become rules, and the, the rules were stupid things like, don't show ceilings. And Orson Welles was like, well, that's dumb. Fuck, I'm Why can't I show that. ceilings? <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's, there's a... Being audacious for its own sake isn't always a bad thing, and I think Citizen Kane did that and came out on the the better side of it than uh, than pretty much any movie that tries to purposely be audacious now can do. <laughs> but that's also up. because that's also because being audacious with cinema kind of means something different right. now. <laughs> well, not only that, but when when, Pete, when Orson Welles was asked about Citizen Kane, he always answers like ignorance, youth and ignorance. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, I thought I knew everything, and I went into a world where I knew nothing. I was like, screw it, let's do it. Uh, yeah, that, sometimes that works out. It's just most times it doesn't, but we never hear about it. Right, well, um, <laughs> the number one uh, thing you hear, like, a lot of cinematographers, like, will talk about, like, always being impressed when they know, when the director knows his camera. Mm. A perfect example is, um, if you've ever watched the talks that Kevin Smith gives... Yeah, yeah, yeah. He knows what looks good, but he doesn't know the names of things. Yeah, he he has a sort of. I don't necessarily want to say intuitive because it's not natural exactly. Right. Like he, but but he he's picked it up through being exposed to it and and kind of thinking about it. But he doesn't necessarily know. The yeah, he doesn't like know the nuts and bolts in the right. way that well, like a professional cinematographer does. There's a there's a story he talks about uh, with Bruce Willis is yelling at him. Because he goes, what lens are you using? And he goes, I don't know, hold on. And he turns to the cinematographer, and he holds up his hands. And he goes, hey, what lens is this? And he goes, that's a 34 inch. I was like, okay, we're using that lens. <laughs> and Bruce Willis is just gobsmacked. Like, you don't, you got one job, and knowing the names of the lenses is one of them. It's like, what? He knows. <laughs> and it's like, that's excellent. I love that. Well, yeah, because Nicholas Ray, who uh, director of uh, movies like uh, Rebel Thought of Cause and Johnny Katai, mm. in one of the film classes he taught us, like, look, directors don't go around using these terms like parallel editing and lateral uh, cinematography. That's something mm. film theorists came up with. We just mm. tell the director, the cinematographer, the editor what we want, and we explain it to them, and that's what we do. Most people don't know the names of what we're doing. We just we grew up doing this and seeing this, and so that's yeah. what we're doing. 
There's a uh, there's a parallel story in um, uh, Richard Feynman, the the physicist, tells the right. story uh, about like when he was a kid, like some other kid pointing to a bird and being like, uh, "Do you know the name of that bird?" And he's like, "No." Oh, and yeah. The other kid being like, "Oh, it's a, it's a brown throated thrush." Does your did your dad not ever teach you anything? And and Feynman's thing is like, I know a lot of things about like you can know the name of a bird and it doesn't right. tell you shit about the bird. Uh, like, what well, it doesn't tell you any of the facts, any of the histories, any of the biology. A name isn't good for anything if all you have is the name. Right, and it's one of the things. Well, like yeah, what that story illustrates is the difference between having knowledge and having the quote unquote correct knowledge. Yeah, having a, sort of having the appearance of knowledge. Right. Uh, and, but uh, yeah. getting back to what we're talking about, like uh, VFX and directors are two wildly different things. One of the things that directors do not get say so on a lot of the times is VFX. A lot of times that's the studio thing. Yeah. And um, something else a lot of people may not know is the director is bonded when he makes a movie. Yeah. He. That's why when something is over budget, that becomes a thing because part of the reason why they are bonded is so to try to keep them from going over budget. If you are a big enough director, you probably don't get bonded, but a lot of first-time directors, you bet, you, you bet they get bonded. And I do mm. mean like a bail bond, yes. And it basically <laughs> means that if they want, the studio can take your movie away from you. Yeah, it's, it's the studio's movie at the end of the day. Right, um, which is also why I don't understand why so many people were upset when they fired Lloyd and Miller. Because when you sign on to a major conglomerate like Disney, and they go, this is what we want, and then Lloyd and Miller do all this thing where it wasn't like they were making a bad movie. They were making a different movie than what they told the studio they were making. And Mm. they were doing so in such a way that even the cast and crew felt uncomfortable. Yeah. And it's I think the thing that that actually got public attention is how public it was. Right. Like it's it's more a, a function of the media landscape we live in today than the replacement itself. Right, and even Amelia Clark said in an interview when someone asked her about Lloyd and Miller, she said, "Oh, I'll tell you this: film noir is not a note." <laughs> and what she was saying was that was something they told her, like in how to perform, like it's like a film noir, but that's not a note, like. Like Kevin Smith and that cinematographer, they know each other, and so they had developed a, a rapport and a shortcut. Right. Lloyd and Miller have never worked with Amelia Clark before. Probably the yeah. way she talks, never again. <laughs> like, uh, one of the most important job of a director, and one of the reasons why Marlon Brando gave some directors crap and other directors not, is trust. Mm. Because as we talked about, the director's job is to take the hits. Not only yep. that... But you're going. You're asking the actor to do this thing. Trust me, it'll work. I won't make a fool out of you. And uh, you have to understand that you're asking the actor to expose themselves in front of millions of people, and they're counting on you to make it look good. Yep. And, and Lloyd and Miller, from all from all accounts, was not inspiring that. And they weren't doing dailies. The dailies they were giving weren't looking good. And when you have as much money as $103 million invested in a movie, you want some kind of guarantee that you're going to get your money back. Right. And so what they do, they fire these guys who aren't going to be hurting for work, and they bring in Ron Howard who, as we said, is 
got his start doing this very thing. Mm. Working under pressure. And he came in, and because he knows how to do shot sheets, knows how to organize the crew, and knows how to talk to actors, everyone immediately felt calm. And the other thing that's important that gets overlooked in a director is how the attitude and atmosphere of a set. Does it feel mm. chaotic or does it feel organized? Does it feel? Do you feel safe? Is it a safe environment that you feel like you can go, I don't feel comfortable doing this. Are you sure this is what you want me to do? Yeah. Like it's, it, it is, uh, it's sort of an, not just the, the sort of general thing, I think works broadly, but it's also an intensely sort of personal relationship with like all these people who are going to like the director is a person who gets a lot of, who gets most of the sort of institutional blame. Right. But, but the actors themselves are also going to be the only other names publicly talked about Right. in, in reviews or just in people talking about the movie. Like it's, like a critic may say, her performance is lacking, I blame the director or the script. Because mm. critics are rather going not to blame the actors, because they understand how much the actor will we see. Yeah, but the sort of... The, the but the sort of said so. Right, but the, but the sort of dude on the street voice is going to be like, oh, they suck. Exactly. Ugh, that person sucks. And, and, the, and unfortunately, that voice does affect hiring decisions it and really like public does. perception of <laughs> of actors and actresses like it's not not good uh actually i did i did want to pull us a little bit back toward the uh the the initial outline for this episode because i i really love because a lot of these i had forgotten about uh, i really love the list uh that you put together of other sort of replacements of filmmakers <laughs> uh, well the first one was Gone with the Wind, mm. in which George Kukola was replaced with Victor Fleming. That's, even that isn't even a real thing. Oh, really? Because uh, it was uh, produced by D- uh, Dale F. Zanuck. Mm-hmm. Dale F. this is back in the day when producers knew how to make movies. <laughs> and so basically, Kukola was kicked off because they didn't think he was doing the job he was doing. They brought mm-hmm. in Fleming. But even then, Fleming basically was overridden by Zanuck. Mm. And, like, Zanuck made Gone with the Wind. <laughs> God, that, that's... Uh, I, I really need to, like... is I need to see if... Is there, like, a book about the history of the role of movie producer? Because it has a really fascinating and, I mean, looking at the modern landscape, kind of bleak trajectory. <laughs> well, it does, but it's one of the things where you just have to piece it together. Yeah, like, but you have to just look at the old Hollywood system and understand that um, that there's a reason why old directors are able to make 200 to 400 movies in their lifetime. Right, and that's because when they were done filming, they moved on to the next project. Mm. They didn't stay on a project and see it to its completion. If you were a big enough name, yes, but nine times out of ten, you just moved on to the next studio project. Mm. You would shoot a movie, it would be edited by that film's editor, then the head editor would then look at the cut and edit what he would think it would need to do. Then it would be given to the producer, or oftentimes the producer would be there with the head editor and they would confer, and then they would be given to the head of the studio. It went through yeah. a lot of things. This, I, this is by way of also mentioning that studio meddling is by no means a new thing, and no. by no means necessarily a bad thing. No. Like the, like studi- like the studio system, I mean, ju- if... 
if anyone's not wasn't previously aware, like that description, like it was a system. <laughs> like, it was like, it like was... they made autom- automobiles. They had a manufacturing system in place. Yeah, it was a machine. And and also, like, studios were brands. Like, yeah. when the, like the kind of massive branding of Disney now isn't new either. Because right. in a lot of ways, all studios used to be that. If you recall the Vanity Fair article about Kim Novak and Sammy Davis Jr. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just how they describe how Sammy Cohen controlled Kim Novak's image. It wasn't yeah. just studios, it was actors and actresses. Spencer Tracy was a blackout drunk. But the studio, whenever he would go drinking, had an ambulance sitting outside the restaurant. So when he did collapse, they would then rush him away in the ambulance, and though they could feasibly say, no, 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 it's a medical issue. Don't worry, he's fine now. Yeah, that's, uh, like, it's, uh, I mean, in a lot of ways, we, we just can't operate on, and that's that's not to say it was a, a good and, and like, perfect system or anything of that regard, but it's well, also just really one of the... saying that branding is by no means new. It's yeah, yeah, yeah. They have yeah. a different name for it, and it used to be so much more controlled. Right, uh, and, and, like, that, in a lot of ways, that just can't happen in the same way now, because... Media is everywhere. Everyone right. is someone would catch it is on the, the eyes of the camera. Yeah. Um, but just the notion of producers having some idea of how film works. Mm. Like, okay, perfect example. Dale Zanuck had um, the Fundamentalists did a couple episodes on this with Kylie, Julia, and Gretchen. They talked mm. about uh, Zanuck had eleven rules on adaptations on how to adapt a book into a movie. Mm. That implies that he gave some serious thought to how to adapt one medium to another. Now compare that, that with, say, Suicide Squad, in which they oh. tried so desperately to sell us on one movie and then gave us not a movie. Oh. And the fact that the studio has looked at it and goes, okay, that'll be good enough. We can try to make some money. We can spend this. It's like, <laughs> it's not a movie. And the fact that we have people in charge of studios who don't know basic editing. Yeah. Like, the the distance between studio heads and filmmaking has become near infinite. Right. It, it's, like, yeah. Not uh, only that, but I don't, I don't... Have you seen the VFX articles about the VFX companies are starting to say, we're going out of business? Oh, no, I hadn't. Okay, because it is so... Ubiquitously competitive because every film requires some VFX. Yeah. And so when they are trying to sell to the studios, because the studios are willing to spend money, but they're also cheap as hell. Hmm. Yeah, like they're it's it's a race to the bottom. Right. And so a lot of times, in order to get a contract, they're saying that they're quoting prices below what they should be quoting. Yeah. Just to get the contract, and then they get the contract. But now they're stuck with the fact that they may not have enough money to stay solvent. Like, yeah, it's it's it, it's that sort of self-defeating, oh, well, we got the contract, but we can't do the work they want for this amount of money. Well, And the thinking is, well, we do this, and so we'll get them next time. Right. But next time is always delayed. And next time is always <laughs> delayed, and also it's like, why are you raising the price? Oh... Yeah, you like they—they they don't think about the fact that they're setting the new norm. Like right. they're desperate, they're desperate underbid 
is the new normal. Right. And, and like the trailers, like uh, I've talked about with trailers, the people who make trailers oftentimes have no idea what the movie is. Oh, yeah. Uh, for for uh, those of you who don't know, uh, I don't know if we've discussed this or not, what they'll do is studios will be like, we have a movie, who wants to make a trailer? Going once, going twice. They'll just put out a call and then the trailer companies will have to bid for the right to do that. And then yeah, if it's... once they win, they'll give like little demos and they'll win and the studio's like, great. They'll either give them an unfinished cut of the movie or they will give them just a box of scenes and like... Yeah, just like a... a si- they basically will give them a sizzle reel. Right. And like, here, make this a, an ad for the movie. Right. And sometimes the, the synopsis will totally not be what the movie is because as Roger Ebert famously said, a trailer is not an ad for the movie. It's a trailer. A trailer is an ad for the movie the studio wants you to see. Right. Uh. <laughs> I, I I mean I think the most flagrant. I don't know. The, there's a lot of really interesting stuff that went on in the in the lead up to the catastrophe that was Suicide Squad. But I <laughs> feel like. Uh, at least for me, the thing that was the most brazen was how clearly, like, the second trailer, I want to say, was like, oh, that, that using classic rock in, uh, in Guardians of the Galaxy was really popular. Let's do that now. <laughs> yeah. Well, and studios copying other studios has always been a thing. Oh, Absolutely. But there's also a sort of brazen sort of like, oh, I see what you did there. Oh. Um, the infamous, oh, what's that Mystery Science Theater Returns movie they did with Carolina Muno and David Hasselhoff that was a Star Wars ripoff? Oh, God. Um, Crap, it's uh, going to haunt me. Yeah, no, I, I don't got it. <laughs> <laughs> um, either way, like, movies that are clearly just trying to cater to the box office demands are not new. But it's, it's also a fine line between movies like that and movies that just happen to be the box of good ideas and just two people in the world having the same good idea and happen to be working for different studios. Star Crash. Star Crash. Thank you. Star Crash. <laughs> I, have a, I have a very quiet keyboard. <laughs> good man. Good man. Um, but... I got the I got a name like Caroline Muno, Caroline. Uh, yes, uh, Monroe. Monroe, sorry. Um, but perfect example. There's the infamous Ants and a Bug's Life. One oh was yeah. DreamWorks and one was Pixar. But now we have John Favreau's The Jungle Book that was completely motion capture, and Andy Serkis's Mogwai, which is coming out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Both also, started d- around uh, the same time. Also, don't forget the the uh, the one I always think of is the peak is Armageddon and Deep Impact. Exactly. These are, this is an example of just good ideas are good, but it doesn't mean you're the only one who has them. And also, lots of good things are in the public domain. Yes. <laughs> Not only that, but there's a different ways to do both ideas or one idea. And a lot of times what you're watching is two different ways to do an idea. Perfect example, Truman Show and Ed TV. Oh, yeah. I'm actually super curious uh, to see how Mowgli turns out, since that is a part of the story that hasn't been adapted nearly as much. Exactly. Like, because the because the late parts of the Jungle Book there are not in the cartoon and not in the recent like 
computer at, like animated right. one. So it's I don't know. It'll be it'll be interesting to see. Um, Alejandra, she wrote uh, an article for the Fundamentals called uh, mm. "The Thin Line Between Critique and Entitlement." Oh God, yeah, that sounds that's that title speaks to me. Right. Well, because part of the thing is when I do a review, I mention. Either the, if there's more than three writers, I'll mention three writers. But if it gets mm. to like seven, I'll start saying a stable of writers, and I'll mention them all. It's just so you see how many people have input on this script, yeah. and how it becomes impossible to point fingers. So you just have to say the script writers or the script, because and I mean, and I mean the the need to point fingers at all is an interesting impulse. Well, no, not to point fingers, but to like, okay, what's the matter with the movie? For me, it's right. the script. Who's responsible for the script? Seventy people. <laughs> I think we know what the problem is. Right. But even then, though, like, say if you heard a story come out, go, oh, the script is being rewritten every day. They don't even know what they're shooting. Even that doesn't mean anything because there's a name for that. It's called Casablanca. <laughs> yeah. Like, the actors used to joke they never knew what movie they were making from day to day. Just because you hear stories of a movie being reached, having massive reshoots or whatever, my God, movies take a long time and a lot of wheels are in motion. And, yeah, yeah things screw up, and sometimes you got to make course corrections. Sometimes late in the game, sometimes early in the game. But you know what? I mean, I feel like... Until the movie comes out, you don't know. I mean, I feel like a lot of it is just a weird cognitive bias because... People remember not hearing about behind-the-scenes troubles of movies that they loved, but A, you were a child in the past (laughs) and didn't read a lot of news or, like, specific media breakdowns, and B, the internet wasn't... Like, even in the early days of the internet, the internet didn't exist. Right. Like, the way that, that, like, social media functions now wasn't... So the fact that, like, and you see this across culture, like people being like, "Oh, why are why are we only why are we only hearing about like transgender people wanting rights now?" Well, because you can't escape it now. Like, they, right. people always wanted rights. Movies were always hard to make. Like, none of this is new. You just can't escape it, and you might need to learn how to deal with that in proportion. Understand that trans activists protested the Oscars when Silence of the Lambs was nominated. Yeah, like, and also oh, understand you, didn't, that Jonathan Demme you, you didn't know was, that? Gee, I wonder why you didn't know that. Maybe it's because it wasn't widely reported or discussed. Jonathan Demme, to his credit, really took a hard look at that. Yeah. It doesn't excuse what he did in Silence of the Lambs, but it does, I think, speak to him. It's like he then went on to didn't engage with them and tried to understand why are you? Oh my God! I didn't mean that. Well, oh wow! I'm probably and understand it just because he didn't mean it doesn't mean it didn't happen. Right. Like this is one of those things that I feel like essentially is a, a lesson that everyone needs to learn, include our our, our humble narrators included, right. because it's a lesson that we constantly need to relearn. That just because something is new to you doesn't mean it wasn't always there. Right. And if you and if you have stumbled because you didn't know about it, doesn't excuse you for that mistake. Like it's well, it's uh, yeah. A lot of times, especially like when you you start getting into bubbles. And right. I remember, you know, back when I was in Tumblr, 
people were ascribing weird motives to writers' rooms. Like, how how can they not see this? How could they not possibly? I mean, clearly this is such and such. It's like, or or maybe they don't follow the same template as you do. Maybe <laughs> they just aren't aware of this. It is perfectly possible that someone got to a successful station in life and be ignorant of other issues. Believe yep. it or not. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, like, it's one of the things where, like, yes, sometimes it's clear they're doing something. Other times, like, you know what? I don't think it's why oftentimes I'll contrast, I don't know if they meant to do this or if this is just an unintended consequence, but this comes off very such, such and such. Right. Unless I feel like it is, a, like, an active, like, they made a point to go out of the way to do this, then right. fine. I mean, my my way of, of approaching that is almost always that I, I don't know whether X is intentional or whether it is accidental. I also don't especially care about the motivations, right. aside from it being an interesting question about what a person's inner truth is. But here's how it looks from the outside. Not only that, but when you are a writer especially in Hollywood or television, your main job is the job. Mm. If you didn't want to write that for those characters, you don't take the job. But right. you need to pay rent, so you take the job. Yeah, the the material <laughs> pressure of uh, if they don't like your writing, you're going to stop being able to buy food. Right, and it's one of the things where, as a writer, part of your job is to be a freelancer. It's like, I need you to write this. Got it. You have to have... Not just one wheelhouse, but several wheelhouses. You have to have a lot of tools in your tool belt or kit. Whatever metaphor you want to use. Not only right. that, but you got story uh, coordinators, whose people's job is to make sure the story stays consistent throughout the entire mm-hmm. season. Or people's job who, they started on the movie at the beginning, but then they left to do something else, but they're still using the story, so they get a story by credit. And now the person right. comes on has to figure out how to do that story, even though it wasn't their idea. Yeah, uh, there's... the fact that a movie gets done at all is a damn <laughs> miracle, which is why I clap at the end of every one I watch because the fact <laughs> that you made it to the end means something. Uh, although sometimes the clapping is more sarcastic than others, um... it's still a sincere clap. It's the enthusiasm may damper from time to time. Well, I think here's here's the thing in terms of getting to the end of movies to me, and I think this also says a lot about that kind of bubble mentality. And by the way. No one ever, no one's ever outside of a bubble. Like, I'm in a bubble, you're in a bubble, right, everyone's in a bubble. They're different bubbles. The only way out of a bubble is into another bubble. Um, <laughs> but one of the things about this is, like, the credits of any movie. Look at all of those people. <laughs> it's still going. Oh, my God. Like, all of this had to be managed and and had to come together into this thing that we saw just what like movie credits are the most easily ignored thing in the universe but if you really think about what they represent the individual hours of life it's it is staggering well it's going back to why the director is considered the go-to guy you blame because it's impossible (laughs) But because we all... we need to blame someone. Well, like, you know, like someone has to be a lightning rod. And right. it's also why when a director gets praise, it's almost sort of implied that he not takes the full praise. Most directors will be like, I couldn't have done it without her performance yeah. or his sort of like, he, he spreads around because he knows 
he had a there's a lot going on that he's not. Yeah, if you of. if you start believing your own praise, that's that is a bad sign. That's, right. well, that's also one of the down. things. Well, also another reason why directors compare movie making to military campaigns is because it feels like the universe is conspiring against you to make sure you don't even get out of bed. <laughs> uh. Um, we've come to the end, sadly. <laughs> Yeah, our our long and winding path. Uh, I think well, our I general think thesis. Uh, I I feel like we hit the general thesis pretty well. Like movies no, are. are I think com- we illustrated the fact that the notion of drama on a film does not denote a movie is bad, or in the fact that just because one of the things that bugged me was the acting coach thing, and I'm like, do you realize how many actors have had acting coaches on set? Acting yeah. is an you're never done acting. <laughs> it's the thing you have to constantly learn. Yeah, uh, that's unless maybe Meryl Streep, but even then, like she, I, I feel like she is also someone who gets She's coaches for coach, all sorts yeah, of. Yeah, she has dialogue coaches. She dialogue acting coaches. Yeah, she gets dialogue coaches. She gets acting coaches. Like I think that un, the understanding that that is required is yeah. what makes someone better at their job, not worse. Well, Audrey Hepburn famously had one for My Fair Lady. Yeah. Uh, it's not a new thing, and, it, and not only that, but if you know Alden Ehrenreich, other movies, Coen Brothers and such, it's not like Han Solo is going to be the character he wouldn't be able to conquer. Because <laughs> Han Solo, well, God love him, is not the deepest character in the Star Wars universe. No. And and that's and that's why he was sort of the weakest link in the movie, but it was fine, because the, the Ehrenreich is a charming guy. Different, different than young Harrison Ford, but still charming. Right. And and everybody else is fucking gold. Right. All right. Now that we're really done talking. Yes. Um, don't forget to listen to the other uh, Fundamentals podcast, Fundamentalists. We have Unabashed Book Snobbery. We have Ladies First. And our own Beneath the Screen of the Ultra Critics. Yeah, you screen. got it. That's Yay! it. There it is. All right. <laughs> don't forget to rate uh, and review us on iTunes. I know you guys aren't because we ain't showing up. Wait, and with yeah. on iTunes, that's the only way we move ahead? Uh, Honestly, you might, maybe, I don't know. <laughs> I, I'm sure, I think I think what it is is our scores of fans don't want us to become sellouts. That, that must be what it is. <laughs> yes, and that's a term I hate with a passion. Because Absolutely, let's talk about that later, but for out. now we should go. <laughs> uh, fine, all right. All right, uh, say goodbye, Jeremiah. Say goodbye, Thad. <laughs> Bye. Alright, you guys have a good one. See you next time. Well, you listen to you. I don't. I'm never mind. You know what I'm saying. Stop talking!